Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show. Today, I'm speaking with Jamie Catherwood. He's an expert in financial history. He majored in history at King's College. Upon graduating in 2017, he began writing a unique and in-depth series of articles about various topics of financial history. His website, Investor Amnesia, offers uh, some great articles and courses about financial history. I learn something new every time I read one of his articles. In addition to his excellent work in financial history, he currently works as a VP client portfolio specialist at O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. So welcome to the podcast, Jamie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for coming on. So how'd you first catch the bug? How'd you first get interested in investing? You know, I actually can't remember the exact kind of moment I got interested in investing. It was. It had to have been at some point when I was at King's College London, because I know I've talked about this before on podcast, but my dad's philosophy was do what you're passionate about undergrad, because if you want to go into business, you're probably going to go back get an MBA. And so his thinking was why do business undergrad and then business at an MBA level, do something else to kind of round you out at undergrad. So history has always been my passion, uh, which is no surprise. And so when it came time to apply to colleges, I decided I was going to major in history, but always with the idea that I wouldn't, you know, go into academia or something afterwards. It was just to kind of do something different than an MBA in terms of material. And so I first thought I was kind of going to get into consulting. That was the first kind of idea I had for what to pursue post-college. But somewhere along the way, it might have been my friend Connor Witt suggesting I listen to invest like the best and masters in business that just through the guests Patrick and Barry had on, I got interested in investing. But yeah, so at some point kind of my second or last year of college where I started getting more interested in investing compared to like consulting or other business uh, industries you could go into. And then once I kind of got the bug, I just started listening to as many podcasts as possible, reading as much as I could, because as a history major, especially in the UK, you don't take any other courses except what you major in. So I was only taking history courses for my entire undergrad. And so any kind of education and investing I had to do on my own. So I just kind of consumed as much content as I could and really fell in love with it. And yeah, the rest is history to use a bad pun. <laughs> yeah. And you pick some good podcasts to start out with. Those are yeah, exactly. Excellent. Yeah, my friend Connor is, uh, everyone never needs advice. He's the guy to go to. He's the one who told me to listen to those two podcasts. And I work at the firm of one of the hosts and he told me to get on finance Twitter. So yeah, he has a good track record. Very cool. So you've also used social media in a really smart way to create a career for yourself. So you started on Twitter in 2017, you just graduated and you started writing these articles. So what would your advice be to say like a new college graduate interested in embarking on a similar path? Yeah, it's interesting. We were just saying before we recorded that, you know, you didn't have some grand plan for your Twitter and kind of content. And that definitely was in the, in the same boat. I was pretty surprised when people were as interested in 
these kind of short finance history articles as they were. I think I always am careful about, you know, some grand advice I give because I know that I was very fortunate that kind of my areas of knowledge expertise were ones that didn't have a kind of saturated market of content. I, I always joke that, you know, if can't get Niall Ferguson, then I'm like the poor man's version. But apart from that, there wasn't really any dedicated financial history stuff, at least in the finance Twitter sphere. And so I just say that to kind of give a grain of salt to whatever else I say, but I think just finding your niche and then learning in public is a powerful combination because you then just become associated with something and people like watching, I don't know, people online like career journey and by learning in public and kind of sharing your findings and stuff, you just spark conversations and kind of increase the probabilities that someone will reach out to you because you post something interesting that you're learning about or working on. I think a lot of stuff if you're trying to use social media like Twitter to grow professionally or just get more contacts and kind of connections is just increasing the odds that someone reaches out or increasing the kind of surface area for new conversations with connections. Because if you're just not tweeting and kind of lurking, you know, like how are you going to find someone to talk to or establish a new connection? And so I think just sharing and learning in public is really powerful, especially if you can find a niche that you are kind of more knowledgeable in than other people. Because again, then you'll just become associated with that more and more over time, which is powerful. Great advice. So based on your study of history, like high level, what would you say are some of the universal lessons from history that lead to successful investing? I think that famous like Charlie Ellis analogy about the tennis players and the two different types of tennis that amateurs and professionals play, I think is interesting in terms of context of financial history. So for anyone that isn't aware, I'll butcher this <laughs> recollection of the story, but it's basically there's two ways of playing tennis that professionals play and amateurs play. And the way that amateurs play is by not losing. So like when you and another amateur friend are just playing around on a local tennis court, your, uh, your win is going to come from less unforced errors. So rather than, you know, hitting some beautiful backhands down the line or something, or some nice forehand cross-court winners, you're really going to win by just not hitting it into the net or out. And it's more a game of who's going to make the most mistakes. And so in that scenario, you're just trying to win by not losing, just kind of playing defensively and just keeping the ball in play and not making unforced errors. Whereas professional level, they're obviously, you know, hitting winners and they're winning based on skill and their ability to kind of manipulate the ball and hit it exactly where they want, the right amount of spin, et cetera. And so I think in investing, Charlie Ellis used the analogy of, you know, the kind of average retail investor and, you know, a big money manager. And the difference being that amateurs in retail investing should try largely to win by not losing. And that doesn't mean, you know, like they're not smart enough or something to do what the big money managers do, but just if it's not what you're going to really dedicate your time into, then you should probably just be smart about choosing some, you know, low cost passive funds and sticking to your investment plan instead of, you know, trying to go make some YOLO <laughs> bets on <laughs> options or something. And so I think throughout 
all of financial history, that is what a lot of these kind of booms and pus come down to is people that should be, you know, taking a more conservative approach, getting swept up by speculative manias, et cetera, and trying to go big and not having the kind of skill set or understanding to really do that successfully. And so people take on more risk and leverage than they should. And they get into areas of the market that they don't really know about and things go south. And so the overarching lesson of the financial history is that human nature doesn't change. We make the same mistakes that the investors in the first stock exchange in Amsterdam made in 1609. And so I think just understanding that and then adjusting your approach to investing accordingly is a powerful way to, and simple way to gain kind of a competitive advantage over your peers. You know, at O'Shaughnessy, our founder, Jim O'Shaughnessy, always talked about human nature being the last sustainable edge and source of arbitrage because technology changes, but people don't. And so for us at OSAM, as quantitative investors, one of the ways that we kind of put that understanding into practice is by taking a systematic investment approach so that, you know, it's not a fundamental stock picker kind of making decisions based on just his or hers and understanding of the market and feelings and emotions because humans are prone to making behavioral mistakes. And so if you just automate and implement a systematic approach to investing, you can kind of take that human element out of the equation and avoid shooting yourself in the foot. Yeah, that makes sense. And I mean, the way I always frame it is even though technology is changing and investment approaches are changing at the end of the day, the money still belongs to human beings and human beings yeah, do exactly. rational things. What do you think are some of the biggest issues in human nature and investing? So you mentioned human nature leads to investing mistakes. What are some of those? What are some of those things that people do that lead to poor investment results? I think two that immediately come to mind, and I guess they're kind of related, is that we investors love to find kind of I don't know, some revered character, you know, like an investing legend or someone that's viewed as being like an insider knows everything and just kind of blindly following what they do instead of doing our own research. So, you know, say Truck and Miller takes a new position in something and then there's gonna be a lot of people just following that because it's Truck and Miller. And that type of investing obviously can work sometimes in the short term, but over the long term, you don't actually know why you own something or why you're following a trade because you're just doing that. You're just following rather than figuring out a thesis based on your own research, then you're not going to know kind of how to manage that position, you know, when to get out and when to add, when to take somewhat exposure off the table. And so you see a lot of that through history and that kind of segues into the larger problem of herding and following the crowd. That's something that has literally happened since the first stock exchange. There's a story in Amsterdam of a big time speculator uh, who could move the market in Dutch East India company shares. And he would go around the stock exchange and accidentally, in air quotes, drop a slip of paper that had big purchase order written down for Dutch East India <laughs> company stock. And a group of you know small time speculators would see this big player drop a piece of paper and rush over think they found you know, this great inside information. And so they go to their other speculating friends and say, 
oh my God, you know, John is about to make a huge buy in Duffy's Indian company shares. Like we've got to go buy up uh, some shares so that we can take advantage when the price skyrockets based off this purchase. Obviously, the, the big-time speculator, John, already owns the shares, and he is just trying to get these small-time speculators to bid up the price of uh, the stocks so that you can just dump out of it and leave them holding the bag. And that's exactly what they did. And so what's funny about that is there was that trick, and then 200 years later in New York City, Daniel Drew, one of the most notorious kind of robber baron speculators of the Gilded Age, he did the exact same thing through what he called the handkerchief trick, where he would go into a, uh, a gentleman's club or bar near Wall Street, and and he would go in, there'd be a lot of speculators there. On his way out, he would take out his handkerchief to mop his brow, and when he did so, a piece of paper would fall onto the ground, and the exact same trick from 200 years earlier would play out, and he would come for better stock. was written on that piece of paper and leave the kind of small-time speculators holding the bag. And so I think there's just a general tendency to want to blindly follow these kind of legends of the industry, but people should factor in, not always that that person's trying to fraud you out of your money, but just you can't blindly follow people without doing your own research. And technology has not changed that at all. One of the more interesting papers I've read in the last few years is about the proliferation of stock tickers and kind of expansion of their networks across the country. And you would think that more investors, we were talking about the late 1800s here, as investors get more access to information in real time, because previously, you know, we were getting price information that was very old and stale and really kind of local. Whereas after the ticker and the telegraph table started disseminating information across the country, you had a lot more data information, but also you were getting much faster and it was more useful because it was real time. And so you would think that that would mean investors kind of invest across a broader pool of stocks because they would have more information on a broader range of stocks. But what ended up happening is that despite the proliferation of data, investors began just herding into the same kind of top 10 stocks. And in each state that these tickers were put in, they found a tendency for the equivalent of like home country bias, but at the state level. And so that's just a fascinating kind of little vignette that happens throughout history where technology provides more information at a faster pace. And you'd expect investors to, again, kind of, you expect the market to become more efficient and investors take advantage of this new data and not just pile into the same popular stocks. But if anything, it just drives investors further into those stocks and you kind of get this momentum trade. But that's been happening since the 1700s, 1800s, you name it. And that was an interesting comparison during COVID when Robin Hood had that tracker of like the top 10 stocks. And again, <laughs> you know, it's like we have more data than ever available at our fingertips, but you know, the vast majority of the daily trades on Robin Hood were in the same like 10 stocks. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's funny how that never changes. And I like what you said about the gurus, because usually I think we are their exit liquidity when they go on <laughs> CNBC and they talk about their their yeah. newest position. I guess that has never that hasn't changed. So one of the interesting bubbles that you've talked about in the past was tulip mania. So 
I have been taught about Tulip Mania for a long time. I've been hearing about it all the time. And then I read your article on it and basically it's nonsense. So do you want to talk <laughs> a little bit about what we get wrong about Tulip Mania and how it's not really the, the story we've been told about it isn't completely true? Yeah, let me just uh, pull up my soapbox here. And so, yeah, <laughs> Tulip Mania. So I kind of got turned on to this by Jason Zweig at the Wall Street Journal, who is a massive financial history buff. He honestly probably almost definitely knows more than me. I used to joke that he was like my financial history dealer. He would just randomly send me like these huge PDFs of like books you can't find online anywhere and just kind of drop these little presents. Very <laughs> cool. Yeah. And so he, one day I was going back and forth with him and he mentioned uh, this book, Tulip Mania, and said, you should read it. It completely changed my view on the tulip bubble. And so, you know, Jason's wife tells you that, you, you go get the book. And it turned out, ironically, that uh, the author, professor in Goldcar, she was actually a lecturer in the history department at King's College London while I was at King's, but our path just never crossed. So that's just an interesting personal connection, but her book was really fascinating. And essentially what she lays out is that all of these kind of stories and anecdotes that we hear today and have persisted for centuries about, you know, people trading the same tulip bulb hundreds of times or people going bankrupt, trading tulips and, you know, throwing themselves in the canal and like committing suicide, all those types of just nonsense, crazy stories, they almost all stem from a series of satirical pamphlets and basically propaganda from the 1630s during the time of the tulip trade. And so, you know, why would there be propaganda? And that goes back to more of a societal kind of situ problem that the Dutch were facing at that time where when tulips first started entering the Dutch economy, because similar to art today, I think it's a useful analogy because people say, you know, that's crazy that people pay this high prices for a flower. You can say the same thing about a lot of art pieces today. You know, if you look just at what the object is, you could say, well, how would someone pay millions for that? But it's art and it's kind of like a luxury asset. And so people will pay sometimes stupid money for that. And a similar thing in Holland in the 1630s, where the tulips were coming in for the first time and the luxury class and the elite fell in love with them and how beautiful they were. And, you know, the fact that tulips could be different colors and they're rarer tulip bulbs than others, et cetera, kind of promoted this just niche industry of tulip merchants and horticulturalists and over time, as the tulip trade became more popular and the tulip bulbs were fetching decent prices, the tulip merchants themselves as a kind of class and profession were rising up the kind of socioeconomic ladder. And the wealthy elite in Dutch society at that time did not like the fact that these you know, seemingly lower than merchants were rising up the social strata and entering the kind of elite status because of the money they made in tulips. And so to turn people against the tulip trade and against this practice of buying and selling tulips, the elite put out these pamphlets that were really, as I said earlier, propaganda designed to sway public opinion against the tulip trade. And so all of these stories that we hear that I mentioned earlier about people, you know, throwing themselves on the canal, et cetera, 
those come from these satirical pamphlets that were just entirely propaganda. They weren't actually based on real stories. And so what happened and why we are still hearing about these satirical pamphlets is that in the 18th century, a German author wrote a book and he used these satirical pamphlets as his primary source material for the section of the book he wrote about this tulip mania. And then Charles McKay, who everybody loves his book, he came in, you know, in the 19th century, and then he used this German author's book as his source material. And so you kind of have this just original sin from a, you know, a historian's perspective of using terrible source material by the German author. And then Charles McKay basically just plagiarizing what the German guy wrote. And so you've had, you know, four centuries now of these satirical pamphlets and the, the crazy stories within them being passed down for 400 years to the point that nobody actually really knows that they're not true. And the, the analogy I always give is it would be like if in 150 years, people looked at, you know, the, the finance meme accounts like liquidity or ramp capital on Twitter <laughs> and then took everything that they said as, you know, verifiable fact and wrote about, you know, a mania and something stupid that like ramp or liquidity were joking about on a given day. And so it's, it's really fascinating. I always love those kind of like revisionist history and debunking. And she does a great job. She goes through kind of looks at a lot of these individual kind of stories and anecdotes and tests them and kind of tries to back them up with her research. She spent like years in the Dutch archives going through this stuff. And I, like, there's one story about a single tulip being traded a hundred times. And again, she spent years going through the archives, looking at transactions. And she said that the longest chain of transactions she could find on a single wall was five, <laughs> which is very different. And I can't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head, but I think she only found like two or three individuals that had really been financially impacted by the tulip trade. And even still, they were also like at the same time suffering other big financial kind of injuries. And so it wasn't even just down to the tulip trade. And so was there a trade in tulip bulbs where tulips fetch, you know, high prices that seem kind of ludicrous? Yes. But this idea that it was kind of this like nationwide, just deranged mania in flowers is, is false. If anything, you know, it did not in any way bring down the Dutch economy, which is what you see a lot of people say when they talk about tulip trade now that it like ruined the country. It was really a pretty niche trade and kind of niche community that was really involved in this. And so the kind of fallout was pretty contained to that community. And so I definitely would encourage everybody to, to read her book. It's called Tulip Mania. In the next month or so, I'm proposing exactly to do a written interview with her where she'll lay out a lot of what I'm saying, but much more eloquently as the one that actually did the research. But it's a it's a fascinating kind of glimpse into human nature and how powerful narratives can be and how people would use narratives because you know today and really at any point in the last couple hundred years, whenever there's a new 
mania or kind of speculation and given asset or something. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> are just instantly brought up as the point of reference. And it's just funny that the point of reference everybody uses is based off of like these propaganda pamphlets. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah, I've done it myself. I've said this is just like Tulip Mania. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's uh, completely it's, false. It's a crazy story. And it just makes you wonder again, kind of going back to that tendency of of investors and human nature to just kind of follow the follow the narrative. It just makes you think about, you know, other popular narratives that we all kind of accept as fact and whether they're based off some questionable source material or whether there's holes in those narratives as well. So are there any other historical bubbles that aren't true? Like did Isaac Newton really lose his shirt in the South Seas bubble or <laughs> is I that false as well? He definitely did. I can't remember exactly what, but I know that there's more to the story there. I'd have to, honestly, now I'm thinking probably as soon as we finish this podcast, I'm going to go back and look. Because I do think there's more to the story there than like that one popular chart people like to show and like getting in and out the worst times. And I can't remember what the kind of more to the story aspect is there, but I do think there is something more there. In terms of other bubbles, I can't think of any off the top of my head that are, you know, as, as questionable as they seem or as questionable as Tulipania. But I do think that there is overall kind of a broader theme there, which is that we tend to look back at past bubbles through the lens of we know so much more than investors did at that time. And so, you know, how could these investors be so stupid to get caught up in like railway meeting or something? I mean, it's always tend to think of people in the past as dumber than us, which obviously if you compare our knowledge level today to them, like we are smarter than more, but if you were just placing an investor of today back in that time period, with no modern knowledge or understandings, then I don't think that there would be any vastly different behavior. And so I think to just kind of write off past bubbles as, you know, dumb investors got swept up by a dumb idea, there's a lot more to kind of pick through and understand about human nature. And so while there might not be bubbles that are as questionable uh, in reality as the tulip bubble, I think that there is a, a just broader lesson of understanding that these past investors were no dumber than we are today. They just have less information, but in terms of how they actually invested and used the information available, they got swept up in bubbles, just like people got swept up in the NFT craze during COVID. And so I think it's just easy to think that we would not you know, fall victim to what investors in the 19th or 18th century did, but we definitely do every day. And so just understanding that you probably won't overcome that at any point is important. Yeah. And I think it helps to put yourself in the, those people's shoes to say, like, if you are used to basically animal transportation everywhere and you see suddenly you start to see trains, like it's a transformational technology, like that's like AI today. And it's hard to wrap your head around that. Like, well, big deal. It's it's a train. But at the time, this was changing the course of human history. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, people thought that when trains first came out and the top speed was like, numbers at 20 miles an hour people genuinely were fearful that passengers would die going that fast <laughs> on a train and that people were worried somehow that passengers would die of like asphyxiation and something about like the speed would just kill everybody it's like 
that's a that's a great point is you know just remembering how huge these innovations were at the time yeah and i mean like the automobile another example to just have the ability to just pick up and go anywhere you want in the country at a quick speed is is that's transformational technology most people were pretty limited in where they stayed yeah i mean the the train i mean the automobile basically created the suburbs and things like sears and those big kind of mail order catalog businesses so there's a lot of interesting kind of knock-on effects but like the automobile suddenly people didn't have to live right next to the train station to commute into work and stuff they could live further out and commute in which kind of spread out the economic development of the United States, which is interesting. Gotcha. So do you think that investors, with the way that people get always get swept up in whatever the new technology is, do you think that new technologies and new industries should just be avoided entirely? Where, you know, when it's first out, it's very difficult to predict who the winner is going to be. Like there were something like 400 car companies back in the day. You look at all of the internet bubble companies, it was really hard to pick out which ones were going to survive. One of the biggest, two of the biggest ones, actually three of the biggest ones weren't even available for, for trading in 1999, Netflix, Google, they weren't even around back then. So mm. is it something when there's a new technology or new industry, should you just stay away from it? Like it's, it's ultimately going to be too hard to pick out who the winners are going to be. I think, yeah, again, this comes back to that kind of like, which game are you playing? Are you... And are you playing the game where you should win by not losing or are you playing for winners? And so I think it's one of those things where if you're going to put in the time to really dive deep into these companies in a given new industry and really peel back the layers and look through the financials to see which companies are kind of more robust and going to be able to withstand financial difficulties, then I think you can tread carefully into those new industries. But if you're not going to put in that time, then the odds of you being able to kind of weed out which company is going to be the winner and the enduring company in that space, you should probably stay out until there's kind of some of the washout effect where the, the weaker companies that are less fundamentally stable kind of get wiped out. And so, yeah, I think overall, I would say most people should probably just tread very carefully into new industries. There's an interesting phenomenon that Warren Buffett popularized in 2008 in an interview with Charlie Rose, where he's talking about this idea of the three eyes, which whenever you have this kind of new industry or big innovation and wave of companies afterwards, they tend to follow this three eye progression where you have the innovator who is like the first one. So like, I guess it'd be like open AI, chat GPT, and then you have the wave of imitators which are companies that just identify and recognize the success of whatever this new innovation or industry is. And they form companies to similarly take advantage of it. And then in the third stage, you have the idiots, which is not the investors, but the kind of fraudulent and kind of mischievous charlatans that are really just forming companies related to that new industry or innovation to take advantage of global investors. And so I think that if you are trying to decide, you know, kind of whether to get in or not, it's useful to think through which phase of that three eyes progression you're in and which one of those three eyes you're investing in. Because you can see even during COVID with the, the kind of Tesla and then EV SPAC boom, 
you can see that Tesla obviously is the innovator in that space. And when people missed out on the 700% rally, I think in 2020 or 2021 in Tesla shares that they started searching for, you know, the next Tesla and there was a wave of EV SPACs and people bought up those shares. And then one of the, the first proclaimed next Tesla candidates was uh, Nikola, which we all know how that turned out. And so in that case, it's interesting because Nikola was both an imitator and an idiot because Milton, you know, went down for fraud and everything, but you can kind of see that was fascinating, honestly, to live through as a financial history nerd that has written about this three hours progression to just see that exact progression unfold in a matter of months. And so I think that was a useful example and hopefully informative for investors kind of wondering about getting into new industries is you have Tesla and then you have all these EV specs. A lot of them have since gone under like Lordstown Motors. And so you just want to be wary of, are these companies actually viable or are they just kind of coming onto the market now because there's hype around this industry and shares of companies in this industry? Yeah, Nikola, that was really crazy because they didn't even have a functional vehicle, right? Yeah, they their shares traded. I think, they, <laughs> I think in the first month of trading, they went up like 100%. And then when they released their first quarterly like financials in the summer, they went public in May. And so then they would release stuff like June 30th. And their statements showed like $36,000 in revenue for the quarter, <laughs> not in profits, revenue. And that $36,000 was from installing solar panels on the CEO of Trevor Milton's ranch in like New Mexico. So it didn't even have anything to do with the hydrogen trucks. And then there was, that, of course, the famous video that they shot of a, a Nikola truck allegedly driving down some highway in like Nevada or somewhere. And it turns out that it was actually just coasting down a very incline. And so it was not being powered by any actual engine. It was just literally in neutral coasting, but it looked through some clever uh, video editing angles to look like it was driving on um, facing like its own hydrogen source. Unbelievable. So we recently did go through this kind of wild speculative period everything from electric cars to crypto to NFTs. It seems now we've pivoted to AI. So what do you think are, how does this current wave of speculation compare to past waves of speculation? This is something that I've been meaning to do a deeper dive on. And so maybe I can come back with a better answer in a, in a few months, but I, this is more interesting than kind of more recent bubbles. Things kind of like NFTs are just kind of your standard, like mini bubbles well, it's, around the market. It's weird it is, because it's so many different things. Like it's yeah. not like this, it's internet stocks. It's like, we just keep moving on from one thing to another. Yeah. And it's like, I mean, it's almost like kind of electricity back in the day where this is something that's going to impact like everything. It's almost hard to quantify or speak about, you know, the impact that it will have because it's not like just, you know, some AI stocks and they'll do great things with it. Like AI is going to permeate through everything over time. You know, companies will start using these tools to increase productivity. And then, you know, what second order consequences does that have? And so I think it'll be probably like any bubble where it'll have a 
this will have a larger and broader impact. But again, there will be a lot of companies that are promising things that they can't deliver on. And especially when you have exciting new technology like this, the tendency for kind of like founders and promoters of these stocks to over exaggerate the, the impact that they will have, especially in the near term is uh, definitely rampant. And so I would say be especially careful and kind of in this space because it's very easy to talk about how AI will just solve everything, you know, and with the dramatic kind of advances we've seen just in the last two years or whenever ChatGPT came out and kind of everybody started getting interested in, in AI and the future. I think there's just so many companies doing similar things. It's hard to tease out who will be the, the winner. And also with the costs of doing all of this AI stuff being so high, that'll be really important to kind of see which companies are actually financially stable enough to kind of endure these high costs and kind of build a moat for the long term. And so, yeah, I mean, personally, I feel like I've seen 50 versions of the same kind of AI companies where it's like a dashboard with different AI tools, et cetera, <laughs> and they all kind of do the same things. And so I find it hard to even know which tool is the best for me to use <laughs> as an individual, let alone, you know, which, know which one of those companies would be investable and worthwhile to kind of invest in. Right. Yeah. And one particular area I wanted to ask your opinion about was uh, Bitcoin. So is there any historical parallel with Bitcoin? So I know that it throughout history, there have been attempts to make like private currencies and things like that. Do you think that there's anything that that can compare to in the past? Bitcoin, you know, Again, this is something I want to dive into more, and I'm always fearful because the Bitcoin community is certainly passionate. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's an understatement. Uh, yeah, but it is weird with Bitcoin because I still don't really know what the point of it is. You know, like what it's weird that after I don't, I don't think anybody does. So <laughs> yeah, there's still debate over like what it is, and it's kind of interesting. I can't really think of an asset that has been invented in history, kind of like just to be invented. <laughs> And obviously it has some use cases, but just, I feel like not to the point where it gets the amount of attention that it does. There seems to definitely be a disconnect there. And so it, it is interesting and it's kind of an ultimate testament to the kind of idea of, you know, value is what people assign to something. And so as long as there's enough people believing that Bitcoin has value, then you can trade it at whatever price it is today. But yeah, it is interesting that there's just kind of this asset class that was kind of created without like real need for. Obviously, there are a lot of crypto people that feel differently and tell me all the you know reasons why we need currency outside of government control, et cetera. But I don't know. I think that I think it is pretty unique in history. I can't, it's not like someone you know invented fixed income just because they think fixed income is important. <laughs> you know, that is actually something that's needed. Companies need to raise debt <laughs> to finance yeah. things. So yeah, I think it's pretty unique in history. Hmm. Yeah, I was just curious because the first use case, which I, you can debate endlessly, is it was supposed to be a currency. So I was just curious, have, have there ever has there ever been an attempt to say, like, we're going to make a currency outside of government control? And did that lead to some kind of mania over it that didn't pan out? Kind of curious. I was kind of curious if anything like that has ever happened before, but 
I'm guess sure not. there is, but there's not to the level of Bitcoin today. Gotcha. Yeah. Do you think that social media is amplifying recent bubbles? Like, are, are recent bubbles more extreme due to the impact of social media? Or is this just kind of, you know, the, the way that humans have always operated and there's not really much that's different? I think it's definitely the way that humans have always operated, but social media gives gives more opportunities to fall for things like that handkerchief trick or just to follow the guru because, you know, it's easier to feel like you're missing out and getting FOMO if you're able to just see a broader range of people in real time talking about gains, you know, and their investments and thinking that everybody investing in whatever company is getting rich. And so I'm going to follow that and buy shares too. And so I definitely think that social media kind of exacerbates our behavioral biases to the negative. But on the flip side, that it gets easy to just always be negative about social media and technology. It's also a way for investors to learn more about companies and industries and what have you that they didn't before. And so it'd be, I don't know what the kind of net net of that is, whether it's a net positive or negative in terms of kind of investor behavior, but I think definitely investor based in negative, um, negative tendencies of human nature. And gotcha. kind of, I guess, whether you believe that it's offset enough by the kind of positive gains from social media. Okay, fair enough. And thinking about the current era, so we're going through this period of inflation. It looks like it's easing a little bit. What I've always heard all of the market punditry compare it to, they're always talking about the 1970s. So is that a good comparison or is there a better historical parallel to kind of the recent wave of inflation that we've seen? So I haven't done as much research on the 70s, but one of my colleagues at O'Shaughnessy Asset Management wrote a pretty deep dive comparing the, the 70s great inflation with today. He pointed out a lot of structural differences. And so if you head over to osam.com, you can find his paper there. It's called The Great Inflation. And I would read through that because he'll give a much better answer than I would. But yeah, he found that there are just some major differences in terms of the kind of role of especially like labors back in the labor unions back in the 70s they had a big impact and the oil embargo and everything like that there's just other structural differences in terms of monetary policy too that make it pretty different than today but again that kind of highlights this need that we have as investors and humans to kind of try and force parallel i think that whether it be tulip mania or vimar hyper hyperinflation whatever we tend to want to anchor current events to a specific period in the past so that I don't know, I feel like it helps us feel more in control when in reality there might not be that many similarities between the two periods. And so I find that really interesting. And then there's a very your question by outsourcing it to get a paper on the same website, but I think that would be the best answer. So I would encourage people to check that out. Gotcha. And do you think that's a way that investors might misuse history trying to take historical parallels too literally or just taking it too far? Definitely. The way that I always have framed the use of history in investing is an analogy of like a compass versus the GPS system, where history is not like a GPS or a roadmap where if you read about the path and study like historical parallels, whatever you're going through today, then 
you know, you have a perfectly laid out route for how to navigate the modern market, like a GPS, but it's more of a, a compass where you can look at the kind of conditions and market environment today, and then look back at past periods of you know, speculative excess and bubbles and see what the kind of commonalities are between those periods and if any of those commonalities are appearing today. And so that in that sense, you can at least point yourself directionally in the right direction so that at least, you know, you're not going against the market and going the opposite direction. And you can just kind of steer yourself when markets are choppy in the in the in the right direction. So instead of, you know, you always see like people overlaying a chart of the 1929 crash on top of you know a chart of the SP 500 or something today. And if the lines are kind of similar suggesting that, you know, the chart's <laughs> going to continue to look like the 1929 crash. Like why would that happen? <laughs> you know, I see, I see that every fall. Like there's, yeah. there's some, every fall around October, someone's comparing the current chart to 1929 or 1987. And... <laughs> yeah. It's just like, why would I continue to fall on the line just because they were kind of similar and squibbled on a, on a graph? <laughs> you know, a one-to-one comparison like that is not going to just mirror each other. Definitely. So this is a value investing podcast. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is what is your, what is the history of value investing? So we often treat... Ben Graham as the founder of this philosophy in the 1930s, but I know you've noted that there have been other people throughout investing history that have taken a similar approach to buy things below their intrinsic value. Do you want to take us through a little bit of that? Yeah. So the the first one that I know of, and can't imagine there's an earlier example, comes from Holland. Surprise, surprise, they were kind of the center of all financial innovations in the 17th and 18th centuries. And there was a Dutch broker named Abraham Van Ketwich, who in 1774 launched the world's first mutual fund called, it's, it's a Dutch name, I'm not going to try and pronounce it, but it translates to Unity Creates Strength. And what that fund did was pool together investments into a fund that was equally weighted across 50 different types of uh, bonds. And so it was technically a passive, low-cost bond index fund that had a 20 basis point fee, which is pretty impressive even by modern standards. That wouldn't be too outrageous. Wow, that's Uh, incredible. Yeah. And it was formed because this Dutch broker realized that after the Bengal bubble of 1772-73, the British East India Company's stock and there were a lot of Dutch banks and financial institutions that had concentrated exposure to the British East India Company stock. And when they were almost taken out by that share price plummeting, this Dutch broker realized, you know, like the average investor needs to have a way of accessing diversified broad market exposure and it's prohibitively expensive to do that personally. Like just, you know, it, I think it costs like it would cost 5,000 guilders, um, the currency in Holland at the time, to buy all the shares in this unity creates strength portfolio. But they could offer shares in this diversified portfolio for like you know a couple hundred guilders or something. Just like trying to buy all the shares of the S&P 500 today versus the share of SPY, vastly different in terms of cost. And so he launched that fund in 1774. It did 
fairly well. And then in 1779, the same Dutch broker, Abraham Van Ketwich, launches his second fund, which was a value fund. So it's like the world's first value investment fund. And the prospectus of this fund said something along the lines of the, you know, say that the investment strategy of the portfolio was to find quality securities trading below their intrinsic value of what you have reason to believe that essentially they will be hurt. And so that was the first time you kind of saw an explicit investment strategy based off of buying good companies or, you know, good investments below their intrinsic value and kind of capturing that return to the mean premium. And so, yeah, 1779 is kind of the, the first, um, I don't know, example, I guess, of a fund at least uh, that was dedicated to value investing style. So Benjamin Graham was great, but Abraham Van Kett, which uh, was a couple centuries earlier. That's fascinating. Yeah. Do you have any plans to write a book about a lot of this content? Funny you should say that I, I do. I'll keep uh, keep more of that under wraps, but yeah, there are preliminary plans to, to do something there. Definitely no timeline, but yeah, there are some ongoing conversations. Nice. That's awesome. I can't wait to can't wait to read it whenever it comes out. Yeah, it'll, it'll be a while. Don't hold your breath. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all right. So, you know, before we wrap up, are there any parting thoughts you you have for the listeners? I guess I would just say that if you found any of this interesting, I would encourage you to head over to investoramnesia.com and sign up for the free weekly newsletter. Occasionally, I'll send out a Sunday newsletter, um, but more recently, the last couple of months, I've been sending out a Wednesday newsletter that's a little shorter form, which is a curation of kind of interesting financial history charts and snippets from investing books from anywhere from 17th to 18th or 19th century with some commentary. And so a quick hit of uh, financial history in your inbox and through to subscribe. Um, and yeah, head over. There's some other cool resources on the Investor Indonesia website, like historical data library with a uh, hundred different data sets from financial history and old books that are digitized and an interactive timeline to kind of visualize the, the overarching uh, financial history. Awesome. And I'll link to that in the show notes. Well, thank you very much for your, for your time today. It was great having you on. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.